I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. All right, this is so exciting. I am here today with Orlando Pita. With a career that spans runways from Milan to New York City, Orlando Pita is one of the most sought-after hairstylists in the fashion industry. Born in Cuba, Pita began working as a hairstylist in the fashion industry in the early 1980s. With more than 30 years of experience, Pita has created looks for Michael Kors, Versace, Yves Saint Laurent, Prada, Valentino, Dior, John Galliano, and more, both on the runway and for campaigns. Orlando is featured regularly in Italian, French, and American Vogue and W Magazine. He's collaborated with photographers Mario Testino, the late Irving Penn, Stephen Mizell, Craig McDean, so many more. Orlando has been named one of the most influential people in the world of fashion by W Magazine. His celebrity clients include Selena Gomez, Madonna, Janet Jackson, Gwyneth Paltrow, Julianne Moore, and Beyonce, among many others. He's even had a guest spot on the television series Sex and the City. Peter resides in New York City, where he opened his salon Orlo in 2004. Orlando, welcome in my chair. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks. Oh my God. I mean, are you? I'm so happy to have you here. I never would have imagined I would get you on my podcast when I started it. So this is like another uh, check on the on the list of things. Um, well, thank you. I, so, I love your interviews. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so actually, you were just starting to tell me before we started, and I was like, well, let's just talk about this on the podcast, is that you told me that you were living upstate and then... For three years, was it? Upstate New uh, York? For three and a half years. Okay. Three and, a half. and then you and moved, October, ba- you moved, moved back, back during COVID, which is kind of unusual for someone to move. Everybody else was doing like the opposite, like getting out of the city. <laughs> what what well, made you, you decide know, to move back? Well, I, I had spent already three years up there and I know what winters are like up there. You know, once really four o'clock hits, the light goes down and... There's not much to do, um, and especially during COVID. Um, and, and it gets cold and it gets lonely. Um, I was fine with that because I was going through personal stuff and a divorce and everything. But, um, but um, I don't know. COVID made me want to – made me realize that I love what I do. I love doing hair, and I want to get back into it like, like full force. And I want to be around people again. I don't want to be on my own anymore. So – so I moved back. <laughs> I didn't even know. Had you slowed down? Had you taken a slower pace for the past three years? I did. Yes. Yes. I, I, I worked with three photographers that were involved in the Me Too movement and, and work kind of dwindled a little bit. And, and I just, I was going through personal stuff. So it was fine for me to just stay away. When you say work dwindled, was that because of the the photographers had stopped working or it was a personal exactly. choice that you made? Uh-huh. No, no, no. Uh, well, the photographers had started work, had stopped working and and the industry had changed. The rates had changed. Um, and I was used to working the other way. And, and with these photographers, I did work the, the, the old way. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't know. I guess uh, work didn't come in as, as often as... Um, as it had before. And I decided to just take the time to for myself. You didn't take it personally though. No, no, no. It's, it's what happens. I mean, I I was, I was at a point I wasn't really willing to negotiate my rate very much. So. And you were um, in a position that you were comfortable enough to be able to do that. I was. Yes. 
Uh-huh. So, so I thought I'd, I'd just take a break for a while. I was questioning everything in my life, what I wanted to do. Do I still want to do this after 35 years? Do I still, um, is there something more I need, I want to say? So, you know, I had all those questions to answer for myself. So taking the time off was really perfect. What was your attitude at work? Were you like a little, like, were you all in or was it a little bit? I wasn't. I wasn't. And I think that's why people weren't calling me either. You know, I mean, it, so much, you, you don't just go in and do great hair. You know, you have to, you have to have a certain way of operating at work um, that makes people want to be around you. And I was, yeah, I, I, I can't say I was my best. <laughs> Did anybody tell you? Yes. Like, yes, of course. <laughs> professionally or, or personal life? Personally, personally. Uh-huh. Like people in like friends and family were like, friends you're not of yourself. Mine, yes. Yes. Makeup uh-huh. artists and editors. And oh, they told but me people they, in our that, world. Yes. That they would hear uh-huh. things from other people about how I was on the shoot and da da da. Whatever. You know what happens yeah. with the gossip. <laughs> but how did you I'm more interested in how did you go from that place? Because I mean, you can't stay at a high forever. You have to have no, ebb and flow. How did you get yourself to a place where now it sounds, I can just even hear it in your voice that you're like ready to work and back and in New York. Like, what did you do to get to that point? Well, I, you know, I started evaluating why I like what I do, why I don't like what I do. Um, do I want to keep doing this and how do I want to do it? I mean, I just started questioning everything and I realized that I love what I do. I just have to work with different people that inspire me and a younger generation. Um, mm-hmm. I just, 35 years in this business, you don't stay um, in a certain place if you don't keep moving forward all the time. You can't get stuck in the past, which is very much a thing that happens with my generation, especially because of all the social networking now. Um, right. And the I joined Instagram being, being in the first lower. few months. I joined Instagram in the first few months I started. I remember telling so many colleagues to join and they'd be like, oh, please, what are you doing? You're crazy doing all that stuff. I said, you know, young people are going to come and take our jobs away and you're, you're, you're going to be caught in, you know, in the dark, but whatever. Um, uh, it took people a long time. So, and so I realized we, we were in a new world with social networking and after a while, it just seemed right for me to take a break from it all and question it. But I realized that, you know, this is still what I love to do. And and then I'm coming back doing it in, in a different way and the way I, I want to. I'm also starting a YouTube channel. Wow. Um, because of COVID, you know, the, the jobs aren't as often as they were before. Um, mm-hmm. hopefully well, they're not for to- me. I, I find it hard to believe that, like, when you were, like, and work slowed down, I, as an outsider, I find it hard to believe that that is possible. You know, you, here, here's another thing. I wasn't reaching out to anybody. I wasn't telling my agent, please tell people, you know, reach out to this one, tell them right. I'm available for work, blah, blah, blah. I was just waiting for the phone to ring. And it, uh-huh. even if it didn't, I was doing nothing actively for that. Had happen, that happened so. ever before in your career? No. No, you were, you would work as much as you wanted to at, until that point at for your entire career basically yes pretty much right but you know it takes so much out of your personal life to dedicate yourself to a top of a field right (laughs) and there had been moments in my career that i 
had decided, okay, no more traveling, no more shows in Milan, no more. Really? Had, when I opened the salon, I thought, I can't do four cities. I can't do New York. Um, not four. Uh, yeah, New York, yeah. London, Paris, Milan. I had to cut out one. And honestly, I didn't love <laughs> being in Milan. It, it was a dark, rainy, gray city. Um, love the food, love the people. But so I decided to cut out Milan. So, you know, there were times along my career that I decided purposely to get rid of things so I could have a personal life. <laughs> uh-huh. And do you have, did you, and do you have a personal life? Yes, I do. Uh-huh. now but did you did you always when you were yeah i always managed like to, to squeeze in yes i always did i would take two months off in the summer one month off in the winter um and are your friends all in the in the fashion industry no i mean some are but um i have a lot of friends outside of the industry i wanted to ask you because you're one of those annoying people for everybody else who has extreme success at a very young age. And, you know, we're all, I'm like on the sideline going, oh my God, I'm not where I want to be at my age. I wanted to be here and what it up. But I want to know what it's like to actually have somewhat immediate success and be on the world stage, even if it's just within the fashion community at that time. What was it like to have success like that? Oh my, um... I didn't see it that way at all. I was learning every day. I was self-taught. I was just trying to get through the day and make sure that um, I did the best that I could do so they could call me again. Um, uh, and yes, I do know that that I started doing great work with big people right away, um, but I did not see it as success. Really? I, I Oh, it was, it, oh my God, it was such a struggle for me every day to go to work and make sure that I performed well. I didn't know what I was doing sometimes. I would, I would, yeah. How were you I not, make, how were you allowed to be on set with Irving Penn or, you know, all of these iconic photographers and, and quote unquote, your version of not know what you're doing? Okay. By, by, by the time I worked with Irving Penn, I was probably maybe three or four years into my career. Right. I had, I had learned quite a bit already. Okay, so you're um, talking about the very beginning. Yes, yeah. the very beginning. I had breaks in the beginning. Like, my first show was a Martine Sitbon show, which was her first show. And I didn't know you had to have a team of assistants. I asked a friend to come with me and, and do the show. And we did the show. We gave everybody different hairdos. It was fun. Um, and then she told me later on when I went to see the video at her house, you know, Orlando, I, I found out from another hairdresser that... People use teams of assistants backstage. Um, so, so you know, you, you learn. I, I didn't know. I didn't know how how to how to do things. But I was in Paris. I had met really lovely people that helped me along the way and guided me. And um, so, it's a totally different, a totally different time in a totally different industry than it is today. Oh yes. Oh yes. Are you thankful that you were able to be in it in that to to start out in that time? Very, very thankful um, because the industry is much smaller. We didn't, we didn't have assistants. Hair and makeup didn't have assistants. Um, the stylist was, didn't have an agent. The stylist was really the bottom of the totem pole. Um, maybe, maybe the manicures, but still. Um, then later on, 
and this was 1984 when I started. Um, Stylus didn't have assistants either. And then later on, and maybe this was just at a starting level, which is the people I was working with. But later on in the 90s, I think Lori Goldstein was the first one to have, uh, the first stylist to have an agent at Art and Commerce. And and then I saw Francois Nars was one of the first to bring an assistant on set. And so the agencies, the, the, the industry started changing in the early 90s that way. And then stylists started working with designers at their fashion shows. And so they became really important and it all shifted. And what now was the money the like important. in the beginning? Honestly, I could say that sometimes today I get offered the money I used to get at the beginning. Oh. <laughs> no, I mean, so, so like, the money in that know, time I, was relatively good, actually. I, if I remember well, the top, advertising rate in 1984 i think was like 1500 a day Mm -hmm. um but if you got a thousand that was good too you know and sometimes that's what you get offered today right right (laughs) is it really hard to work for less money no i mean yes because it's not what we what we're used to getting but when you when you look at the rest of the world and what people make and how they live no it's still good right when I want to go, keep going back to the beginning of your career, you were self-taught, you're on set. How did you give yourself enough allowance to make mistakes when you also, at the end of the day, have to perform at a certain level? I try, if I made a mistake, I tried to turn it into something good, you know, and that's, and I learned from my mistakes too. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember once I didn't know that you couldn't put heat to, to a synthetic wig and I put heat to the wig and it just started, it just crimpled up like, like plastic. And I thought, <laughs> wait, let me do the whole wig like this and just leave out bangs. And that became the hairstyle. <laughs> it was for Italian Vogue. It worked. You know, you, you just, you, you take your mistakes and you make them work. Um, and it's the people around me. I mean, I, I did not become successful alone. I, 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 I'm a sponge. I love inspiration. I love people that take me back to the past. Paul Cavaco was one of the first people that I worked with, uh, with Stephen Mizell, maybe in 1986. We were working for Perlui. And um, he became just this wonderful person that mentored me every time we worked together. And it was so great. Were you nervous? (sighs) Yes, but I was so excited of what was happening to me that the nerves didn't get in my way. Mm. But yeah, I was nervous, of course. So four years after you basically start into the industry, you're working with Paul Cavaco and Steven Mizell. Yes. I mean, that's incredible. And and Irving Penn. And yeah, it's crazy. It it was incredible for me to be working for Vogue and, um, and to be working with these people. I mean, Irving Penn and, and Richard Avedon for me as a kid, I used to, I loved fashion magazines as a kid, so I always looked at everything. And, and Yves Saint Laurent was somebody that I looked up to. And later on, I did his shows and then his last show. Um, so I still, though, four years into it, um, was making mistakes. And I remember I was in a sh- on a shoot with Carlene Cerf. I forget the name of the photographer. I think maybe George Holtz or something for American Vogue. And she walks in and she says, I want hot rollers. I want big hair, messy hot rollers. And I'm like, oh, hot rollers. No, that's old fashioned. I don't even carry those. Um, 
of course, this is what you say when you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to do it. Um, right. I'm not, I'm not into hot rollers. Come on. We need to move on from that. And she's like, and then the photographer's like, actually, I have a set of hot rollers here in the studio. And she's like, great. Orlando, you do hot rollers. And I was like, okay. And I went there and I started putting on the rollers. Oh, my God. And I was burning my fingers and they wouldn't stay on right. And I couldn't get the clip on tight. It was a disaster. And by one o'clock, she called off the whole shoot. And we all went. Uh, and um, I went to the beauty supply store. I bought myself a set of hot rollers. I bandaged up my blisters a bit. And I went home. And I made sure that I learned how to do hot rollers that day. Did you um, resent her for stopping the shoot? No, she was right. It was awful. I mean, <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Vogue has a list of people that you work with and you don't. <laughs> Um, so I got put on the, the people of the list of people you don't work with, but then as life has it, the editor in chief changes and Carleen Surf gets fired and I get a second chance. So, <laughs> so did you, did you then end up working with Carleen Surf, uh, again or for years and what, you know, for years, for years, I didn't work with her. I worked with her. Yes. Years later. And I never brought it up and she never did either. <laughs> <laughs> That's- Why would I bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> Remember when I ruined the day? At, at yeah, shoot? I know. Um, what was it? What was it like? Like I have a kind of like image of what it was like to work in the eighties and nineties. That it was wild, and there was like you know debauchery and bad behavior and great art. What was it really like on set and in the industry at that time? I mean, it was all that. It was fun. The girls were 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 had personality. They looked great when they walked in. They had a look. Um, it it was a big time in the industry. I think creatively, it was um it was a very exciting time to join the industry. Um, you know, really, let's say the eighties was the last decade that we had original looks in fashion and hair and makeup. Yes, they might have been borrowed from the past, but we never saw shoulder pads like that. We never saw asymmetrical permed hair like that. Um, uh-huh. The nineties already started referencing the past. And since then fashion has never really been original, totally original anymore. It's always a borrow from the past. Really. I see what you're saying. The nineties designers like that came up like helmet and Prada and um, all the, all those borrowed from the past. Um, You don't think the minimalism was, was new in the way that they did it. Yes. The minimalism was definitely new, but the pieces, the design aspect didn't seem like something we hadn't seen before. And did you feel that way at the time? I like clothes. I like fashion. I like sewing. I make patterns. I, you know, so that's, uh, I look at, I look at a garment like that. Was it, what was it like to be um, gay in New York city and also in the fashion industry at that time? Um, Gay, gay, I don't know. I I didn't ever feel it was a problem to be gay other than when I was in school and I was called faggot every day Mm. um, and bullied. But once I got out of school, I, I never had a problem with being gay, especially in the industry. Did you feel like you found your people? Yes, absolutely. Do you think that because to you work were bull- with, to work with, uh huh? No, but I didn't just feel you like felt- I found my people to be my good friends for life all the time. Okay. 
um, to work with, yes, I found my I found my place. Do you think that when you were bullied or feeling like um, not, I guess just bullied or not okay for being who you are, did that in any way make you better at your job? I think so. I think it gave me this voice inside that said, I'm going to show you when I get out of here who I am. I didn't know what I was, what I meant by that, but I, I just really wanted to show that, you know, I don't know that I wasn't this weak person that just accepted all the, because that's what I was doing in school. I didn't fight back. So it bothered me that I didn't. Um, so I don't know. I just, and you know, it's funny. One of, one of my worst bulliers contacted me, me um, years ago on Twitter uh, talking about how wonderful it was that I became so successful and that he went to school with me. And it's like, do you not remember what you did? Um, I never responded to him, but yeah, it, I, I think definitely the bullying helped propel me to, to become successful in whatever field I, I went into. Do you fight back now? Yes. It's different now. <laughs> what is that? What would that look like for you? I just say how I feel. I, I'm not a fighter in, in, in an aggressive way, but I, if I feel something is happening that's wrong or something is said that's wrong, I'll say it. Do you feel like you've had in your career or like even in like the last, let's say, 10 years, like times where you've had to assert boundaries or say something didn't rub you, that wasn't cool? Yeah, I could say I did, yes. Especially... Like I said, in those years where I was just going to work and doing hair and I wasn't really participating very much, if I, something bothered me, I would just say it. And, um, and, and, you know, some people would, like I said before, it got back to me that, you know, you're so angry at work. People don't really know this new, new Orlando and, you know, what's going on. And I would tell people, well, I'll just say what I feel. And sometimes people can't take that. And I really don't, didn't do that throughout my whole career. And then I started doing it. And now I do it. I don't care anymore. Right. Now you'll do it, but you have a different attitude about it. Exactly. Exactly. I certainly do. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? I had, to go through, I had to go through those angry years, honestly. And do you take responsibility for, for being angry? Yes. Yes. I wasn't horrible to anybody. And I apologize if I did. Maybe I shouldn't have responded that forcefully, but right. but no, I, I mean, it but just personally, even just for yourself, you you feel like you were responsible for that, or or no? Yes, I always feel I'm responsible for things that happen to me because ultimately, it's my choices that bring me there, and it's my choices that are going to take me out of there. So, I don't try to look too far beyond myself when things don't go right. <clears throat> How is your family? So you, you come from Cuba. Do you remember like being born there and living there at all? Absolutely not one incident in Cuba. Do I remember? <laughs> but I remember my first days in America. I remember being in America because it was so different. I was a month shy of being five years old, and and I went straight into kindergarten. Did you speak it was English? September twenty first, nineteen sixty seven, and. Um, and it was cold already. And we had little shorts from Cuba. And um, we were in West New York, New Jersey. And um, yeah, I remember, I remember America. I don't remember Cuba at all, though. 
Did you speak English when you went into into kindergarten? No, not at all. Not at all. That's when the bullying started first with the English. Did you feel like an outsider? Absolutely. I, I lived in West New York, New Jersey, which were there were a lot of Cuban refugees. So outside of school, you didn't feel like such an outsider. Um, and since I didn't remember Cuba or really re- reflect much of the past, I, I didn't I didn't feel like I wanted to go back to anything, but um, but I did feel like an outsider in school. Oh my God, yes. Until I learned English, I think that that changed a bit. And what about your your family? That when you were like, I want to do hair and move to New York, were they all on board for that? Well, I lived in I grew up in West New York, New Jersey, so it's right across the river. Um, no, they weren't on board for that. My um, my family. You know, like most immigrant families, they want your kids to go to college and to be a lawyer or a doctor or some architect, some great profession. Um, and I was, I got I had good grades in school. I had honors in English and, and, and math. And so they did not expect me to become a hairdresser and were not happy that I became a hairdresser and didn't really support it. Um, but that's fine. Um I don't know. I had something in me that wanted to do it no matter what anybody told me. And maybe if you told me that I couldn't do it, it gave me that drive. Mm-hmm. And and now they must be proud. Yes, of course. They're happy that I didn't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you had success at a, a young age, do you feel like you had to sacrifice like anything in your, in other parts of your life? Because with success comes a, pretty big responsibility. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, because I was, you know, in training really in the beginning, I wouldn't go out to clubs if I worked the next day. Uh, My friends started calling me grandma, Um, but it didn't matter to me. I mean, what was happening in my real life was so much bigger than going to a club or partying with my friends. I didn't care about that too much because I started early too. I mean, I started going to Studio 54 and Xenon and Ice Palace and all these clubs in New York at age 15. So by the time I was 21 and started this, I had, I had gone out a lot. You were already 40. Yes, you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was fine with just going to the Pyramid Club in the East Village every once in a while on a Sunday or whatever. So, Oh, my God. I even um, went there one, a couple of times when it <laughs> opened when I moved to New York. So I wanted to talk to you about when you started working for Dior. Was that a huge break when you were collaborating with John Galliano on the shows? It was it was great for me to work with John at Dior because I had worked with John in London um, in his first six shows, five shows, I think, um, coming out of school. We, he, we had a, um, I had an agent called Lynn Franks, who was um, a dean and absolutely fabulous. That's the character that uh, my agent was. <laughs> And for real, the character was taken from that. And she said to me, darling, you have to go see this guy, John Galliano. He's a star at St. Martin's, blah, blah, blah. And I went to see him and we got on. And so I did the first shows in London. And then he he moved to Paris and worked with Julian and Odile and other people. But then when he called me in 99 to do Dior and he wanted to take it into a modern era and he called Pat and I. And we did that first show called The Matrix in um, at Versailles, where a fashion show had never been done before. I mean, it was definitely a highlight of my career at that point. Mm. 
I feel like the three of you were so equally matched. It was like all heavyweight talent and that you were also, it seemed to me like all on the same page, you know, when, when it was like something where you guys all had a vision. John was such a great ringleader. I mean, he was so, um, he was so amazing to inspire you and, and and would show us loads of, of, of inspiration books that he had made for us. And, um, and we would have three three days to to do fittings with a lot of girls. So when you have that when you have that luxury, um, and then you had the girls booked five hours for your show, um, so you really had the time to do the, the, the exquisite work. I mean, it's not not many designers give you that opportunity. Even in um, 2010, like when he was still at Dior, you would have three days. It depended on the. On the season, you know, sometimes if we got the look by the two days, you, we didn't do the third day. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes we did in one day, and sometimes we needed a fourth day. <laughs> you know, it's different every season. Can um, you describe what the creative process is like, specifically on that show? But like, what are you doing? Are you uh, during that three day process, and how, are you doing different looks on hair? Is it makeup? Yeah, so, so- so, so we go and we have a meeting with Pat and I go and we have a meeting with, with John and, and Bill and, and Steve and other people that were there. Um, and they start showing us everything, pieces of dresses, because things wouldn't be really done at that point. And, um, and um, the shoes, the access, all the accessories, um, just all the different feelings that the show had. And then, um, and then we would go off into, into a little room hair and makeup room not so little um where we had each like maybe two or three models and we would just start trying looks and then photographing them and bringing them down to the studio for john to see them and then he would say oh let me see that makeup with that and then so that's how the process would start and then sometimes put in an outfit and then but there were maybe sometimes four or five sections to a show so you had to come up with multiple looks anyway once you had the first look down, then you had to go back and, you know, start doing the second look. And, and what and was like your that. call time and when would you get out? Well, um, so we were both doing a lot of shows at that time with for other people. So we would probably start at 9 a.m. Um, maybe, maybe I had to slip out from 1 to 3 to go to a show or to another fitting and then come back there. I would leave assistance doing prep work or, you know... Um, and and yeah, it was like that, coming in and out all the time. And sometimes you, you know you work till midnight, one o'clock, three in the morning. So there were there were times that we worked all night, and we just went to the show venue. So, and when um, you're doing such a complicated look, like I remember the square, the square hair hairdo, yeah, yeah. How can you? I mean, not saying that every model is going to get the same look, but there's only one of you and you can't really expect your assistants to know exactly your vision. How do you do that? There were, there were about, I think nine, eight or nine girls in the, in the show with that hairdo. And the hardest part for me was John had shown me the picture of Jean Shrimpton with that hairdo that Avedon did. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had also seen another Avedon book of um, kind of, behind the scenes photographs where he took a photograph of the back of her head and it's a card a square cardboard and it's her hair is taped onto it so and i had already seen that so i knew that i couldn't do that for a runway so i had to figure out how to make this hair do work 350 365 degrees so 
it took me three days. And I, I mean, are you shitting your pants going, how am I going to yeah, make this that work? Was, that was, that was the hardest one because I had gotten all the looks and that one I couldn't get. And, um, but on the third day I figured it out and, 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 and we got it done. And, and, and my assistant at the time, Teddy Charles and I were up all night and we finished at, you know, eight thirty in the morning before we had to get to the show at nine o'clock. Um, and we got it done. But it was very difficult because the placement of the extensions and then hairspray wasn't working. So in the end, what worked was spray mount from the art store, like spray glue. Oh, my. Um, but weren't you terrified when they go down the runway that that the hair was just going to, like, you know, have a wardrobe malfunction? No, no, not that. Because um, I knew the way I I put it in that it was not going to fall off. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I always am terrified of and, and, and hate when I see down the runway is if the hairdo wobbles, you know, if it's not secure. Um, okay. And, but, you know, of course I have the girls walk and make sure that it doesn't wobble um, before they go out. Because when you do hairdos like that, that are big and defy gravity, it's, it's hard to make mm-hmm. them stiff that, so they don't wobble. So I wanted to ask you because... I don't think there's anybody in fashion who doesn't remember when um, the tape came out of John Galliano and more Mm. than what it is about him. I'm more interested in what is it like to be someone like yourself who has worked with this person who might be friends with this person. Um, What was that experience like? How did you deal with that? I mean, you have to deal with it very privately because, um, I felt bad for John. Um, you did? Yeah. I, I felt that they took one little splice of, of his life and turned it into who he is. And it's not that. And people had talked about him being set up. And, you know, when you start looking at all the variables, it seems very likely that he could have been. I don't know. I'm not one to figure these things out. But, um, no, it hurt me that he was going through that. And um, and that really... There was no, there was nothing anybody could say in the business because nobody wanted to hear a defense of John at that time. Um, and it wasn't the right thing to do. It was hard. And you lost a job too, on top of it. I mean, I kept going with the company and, and, right. and, with, the, and with Bill, but um, we lost a whole way of working. Yeah, we lost the person that we, we loved working with for a mistake that I don't know... I don't know if you need to have those kind of repercussions, but cause I, cause I know, I, I know John on a personal level, John is not that person. So, but back then, you know, I don't know. Can you, when you have someone like that in your life, do you immediately go, that's not them. I know them. Or do you ever doubt and go, Oh God, maybe there's something I didn't know. Oh, I, I know John. Well, I mean, I worked with John for years. I mean, we've talked about so many different things. Um, that's not John. I know that that's not John. Uh-huh. I don't know what, you know, and you saw this stuff, stuff precipitated it at the bar. I don't really know. It's hard to know from the tape and, you know, I don't know. People right. release certain things that they don't, you know, they don't release the other part or whatever. But so it's hard to know, but something was going on that, um, that made him go into that rant. Um, and, and, and plus he was under the influence. So that didn't help. Right. But he's in a much better place today. 
Well, thanks for sharing that because there's only so many people who actually kind of go through that adjacently with somebody that they know. And I'm always curious as to how that person kind of navigates through that. Yeah. And, and then I was able, and then I did another show with him. He did a guest spot at Oscar de la Renta one season um, after that. And that was great to connect with him again there. Um, in another scandaloso, um, I remember in the New York Times when you had a feature, you had just opened Orlo Salon. Um, it was the $800 haircut. And I think this was in 2004, um, which, by the way, your prices haven't gone up um, nearly enough for inflation. Tell <laughs> I'm not going to talk about my prices yeah. right now. <laughs> Tell me about – so it came out that you were charging $800 a haircut, which I remember you saying in the article was on par with what you were making in the industry as one of the top hairstylists. How did you feel like that article came out in terms of what you thought it was going to be? And tell me about how that <coughs> affected you. That um, that writer showed up in my salon and never said she was a writer. She said she um, she wanted to maybe get her hair done by me and wanted to talk to me. I was working on somebody. <clears throat> and um, And she waited and watched me work the whole time. And then when she left... I mean, and then when my client left, I went up and talked to her and she told me that she was a writer for the New York Times. And she was doing a piece on the $800 haircut because, you know, now people are buying these luxury items and she had just bought these $2,500 boots. And, you know, it, it's talk. we want to talk about special things that people are attracted to and they will pay anything for and blah, blah, blah. I said, no, I can't talk to you because I Vogue has the exclusive. They've done a photo shoot and um, I can't talk to anybody until that story comes out. You have mm-hmm. to leave right now. Please just let me, you know, just a few quotes, whatever. And I said, no, you have to leave right now. I'm not going to speak to you. And I threw her out. Then the article came out. Wow. I never spoke to her. <laughs> um, but I did explain later that I had a rate in the business. I divided it by eight. That's how I came up with my dollar, with my amount. I had never worked in a salon. I... <sighs> It was all new to me. I talked, I discussed it with my agent. Honestly, I didn't think I was doing something that outrageous. It was just in the middle of everything that I was doing. I planned that and that's how I figured out my rate. And then this came out and I mean, it created such a stir. And then when the article came out, I was in LA and a winter calls me up that morning and says, you weren't supposed to do an article before our issue came out and it's already gone to print. I can't even stop it. And I told her I was really sorry, but the, the, and I explained to her what happened. Um, but you know, and, and then and then my manager called me freaking out. Everybody called me freaking out that day, and I said, "Listen, I worked with Madonna for years. If I can, if I know one thing, it's just, just wait to see what happens because we don't know what's going to come of this." And what happened was, everybody was curious about this eight hundred dollar haircut, so I got booked up right away. Mm. <laughs> It was, it was, so it ended up being kind of good for business. Yes. But did it, it, did you, did it make you feel like you had like, I don't want to say shame, but did it make you feel like, like uh, bad about yourself because this had come out? No, 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 I didn't feel bad about myself. I felt like I had a lot to then deliver for that price Uh and I had to do really top work and I did. And um, so I knew what came with it. And, you know, also 
this is how it happens in, in, in hair salons, right? Somebody washes your hair. You go to your hairdresser. They cut your hair 15, 20 minutes. You go to an assistant. They blow dry your hair. You could have a good haircut and a bad blow dry. With me, it's all, I mean, I don't wash your hair, but I do the, the, the whole thing from the beginning to end. So you don't get me for 20 minutes. You get me for an hour. So, you know, maybe that, you know, $400, $500, 20-minute haircut it's really uh, probably more expensive than my $800 one hour haircut. I had a reaction to it in this way. How much do bankers get for closing a deal? How much do real estate agents get for selling multi-million dollar homes? I mean, how much is a Birkin bag? It's like, I felt like it was an unfair attack on us because we're the help. We're hair and makeup. Right. We don't deserve to make that kind of money. And I just thought, no, well, what does anybody people, else do who makes that kind of money? Funny you say that you thought it was an unfair attack. It was people in the industry that attacked me. Really? Yes. Look, go back to the article. It was Michael Gordon at Bumble and Bumble, who I worked with for years. It was other people in the industry that said, you know, how dare I or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. It did, it, honestly, it didn't matter to me. I just knew that I had big shoes to fill with that price. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to know if I come in, can I get like a $60 haircut? Like, <laughs> do you have one of those and I'll only take up 10 minutes of your time? Well, we'll we can square work that out afterward. Yeah, I'll Venmo you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk to you about social media. You, in my eyes, are one of the top five hairstylists living today. If you went on social media and people always mis misunderstand when I ask a question like this, it's not that I personally am valuing social media, but it is a, me a metric of a certain type of notoriety and success and one that people who m want to monetize use often. Yes. So you as Orlando PETA, you have 25,000 followers or something like that. In my mind, you should have... 10 million. If there are other hairstylists who have, you know, 10 million, you should be one of them. What does it mean to you? Why don't you have, why aren't you the biggest hairstylist on Instagram? Um, because I'm a hairstylist from a different era. So I don't, I don't, um, use Instagram for all that it is. Um, because I'm just not so familiar with it. And, um, and also, it's it, I do as much as I can for, for me and, and who I am and my personality. I got hacked last year uh, in June. I don't know. I think I had eighty thousand followers then, and then I got and then I had to start from nothing again. And then I got hacked again in the end of December. Oh my gosh! Um, and but here's the power of somebody like Selena Gomez. I mean, I started working with Selena in the beginning of December, and I had nine hundred followers, and I have almost 25,000 today. You know, how does that happen in, in two months? Um, but it's, it's Selena. Right. But what does that mean about the followers then? I don't try to look too much into that. <laughs> um, I'm grateful that they're there. And then I try to provide content that, um, that's going to excite them. Um, I'm a bit slow at the moment on the content on Instagram. I think I have like, 20 something posts. I don't have that many. Right. But do you, do um, you not feel the pressure um, from either your own brand or from uh, other brands that you might be working with to have a big following? No, 
I don't know. I just don't feel, I, I don't want to be trapped by all that. Right. Um, and you don't look not, at it as a measure of success then. I mean, in a way it, it's a certain type of success. You know, I know that, you know, I probably lose jobs to people that have, you know, 300,000 followers. Um, I've, I've worked on jobs where the makeup artist got the job because they have more followers than the person that used to do it. So, and that doesn't make you angry. No, no. I mean, it's just the way the world is today. And, you know, I had my way in, you know, somebody had to be out when, when I got in and it's the same way today. You know, somebody has to lose their position for somebody new to come in and it's all. Right, but Orlando, it's not based on talent. Um, not always. Right. They may or they may not, but it's not based. Right. Like if somebody's right. getting a job because they have a social media following, it's ultimately about money. Yes. Well, you know, maybe the company that's using them doesn't have such a great product anyway. So they have to use, you know, they have to sell something a certain way. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm I don't, annoyed for you. You're, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm like, you, you are. Know, I am, I yeah, because I, I feel like the I don't feel the, that way. The job should go to the person who has put in thirty five years and is a master of what they do. I look at it and go, "Oh, that's not mm. right." But you're nice. You're too nice. No, I guess. there has to be an opening. <laughs> there has to be an opening for new people. I don't agree. I, I, okay. I think you know, it's not. I wouldn't have gotten in. You know, because it was like that when I tried to get in. It was all the masters. The people had family. They were teens. You know, Peter Lindbergh had his team. This one, Patrick DeMarchelli, Everybody had their teams. You know, luckily Mario Testino became famous, and then I became part of a team. But you know, I, I like that that it's young people have a way to get in because there's a lot of great young talent, and sometimes um, us older generation people are stuck in our old ways of what is beautiful and right. Um, fashion needs to be challenged constantly. And that's why it keeps growing. I think it's important to just keep it moving and to always allow new talent in and not to just keep with the tried and true. Why do you think it took the fashion industry so long to make the changes they're making now with diversity of races and also of bodies and women and men. I don't know. And this is why I love, this is, this is why I love, you know, that social media has allowed people to, 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 to show their work that couldn't be able to show their work, but also the diversity factor. I mean, when I, whenever I did a beauty story and I had to pick my models and it's nothing that I have against white people, but I never chose a white girl because I felt like they were in all the other stories. Right. Um, so if I could get a chance to choose the girls and I did sometimes three girls for an allure story, they were always of, of a different race than the white girls. Um, and sometimes I would get, you know, messages, uh, can we try to include a white girl in there? And it'd be like, no, they're in your other stories in the issue. And so I don't know why the industry took so long to, to, to catch up to that. Probably because they felt financially it wouldn't work. I don't know why. Because, you know, Latinos love beauty and fashion. Black people love beauty and fashion. Asians, everybody. You know, right. looking good is universal. <laughs> it doesn't belong to one race. And so I always found it really, really annoying that, that, that fashion was so closed off like that to all the different races. I think the best thing that has come out of social media 
I, you know, you can talk about all the negative things is that it has opened, given people a voice demanding that they have representation. And I don't think that would have happened if the old guard was still casting all of the, you know, skinny white model, blonde models from Russia. I agree. And honestly, like, you know, that it doesn't, you don't need Anna Winter's validation today to be somebody in the business is great. great. Do you remember life before Anna Winter at Vogue? Yeah, yeah. It was was it very different when she came in? Yeah, Anna was that young, new, fresh blood doing amazing things. Yeah. She, she, she shook up the magazine when she came in. It was great. But then it becomes a point that where you're nobody uh, is really, you know, considered great until you have the seal of approval from Anna Winter. Come on. That can't last. And I'm glad it doesn't exist today. So a lot of queens would be upset if I didn't ask you about Madonna. <laughs> I can think of one in particular. Um, how did you meet her and what was it? What was your first impression or job like with her? So my first job with Madonna was she was doing press for a movie Body of Evidence. I think it was 93. Mm. Um, and I had to go to her hotel room and do her hair. And I, I go to her hotel room. I did not expect her to answer the door. When I go in, it's just me and her. There's no, there's no manager. There's no PR person. There's nobody. It's just me and her. And so it was really great because she was like, hey, I, I saw you work in Bazaar. Fabien Baron says that, you know, I have to work with you, that you're great. And, I, and, you know, I love what you do. So what do you think you want to do to my hair? And this was later on in the conversation. And I said, um, <clears throat> well, what are you wearing? And she, I think she was wearing a Prada outfit or something. And so I just did a simple blow dry. I said, you know, you're not performing. You're just talking to someone. Just look beautiful. And, you know, you don't have to look extravagant or anything. And she was like, okay, whatever you, whatever you think. And I did that. And I don't know. We spent like three hours together. And we just had such a chill time. It wasn't like you were speaking to the, to the biggest pop star in the world. It was... Like your girlfriend, you know, it it was so pleasant. And then um and then we didn't work together again for a while. Our schedules didn't coordinate right. Sometimes she she calls at the last she would call at the last minute and I was in demand back then, so I wasn't always available. And so finally we did get to work together on the uh it was the MTV Awards when she came out with David Letterman and the day after we shot the secret video. Oh, with Melody McDaniel. And that's, um, that was my first, you know, real big thing with her, the secret video. And she had, that morning when she came in, she had just met Carlos and she said, I met this guy. He's Cuban. He looks, I think he looks like you. And so I don't know, we just got off on the right foot of everything. And, um, I don't know, we just became really, really close friends. And it was a lovely time that I had working with her. She's inspired me many, many times. And when was the last time you worked with her? Oh, oh my God. Um, hmm. The American Pie video, I think. Oh, so it's been a while. Yeah. Did you feel comfortable having like a strong point of view about the hair with someone like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not scared to talk to people. I don't put people above me. You know, I had to talk to to to, to amazing designers before I had to talk to Madonna. So... 
that I really looked up to. So, no, I mean, and I mean, I knew that she she was up for th- for stuff. So I wanted to present uh-huh. ideas to her. I wanted to show her that, you know, I could do something different for her. When you have had um, a situation, sometimes people just don't gel. You know, you have different expectations or you're just mm-hmm. like, I've been in situations where it's just like, we're not a match. And I'd say that a lot. Like, we're, we're just not a match. Um, is there a time when you were in a situation where you felt like it was a really hard situation that you just had to kind of like barrel through? <laughs> yeah, there was one time um, Richard Avedon was shooting Sharon Stone for The New Yorker. And if you read the article, the writer was in the studio the whole time and talked about the catastrophe of a day that was. Um, it's just a power play between Sharon and Richard and and her. And, and then, of course, it, it spreads on to me and Francois, who was doing the makeup. Um, but we were there for Richard, and it was Richard guiding the whole thing. But it was a really, a really rough day. <laughs> and, Meaning um, you, were, in the you end, were given a hard time? Yes, both of us were. Um, because Richard wanted her very raw with nothing. Mm. And she said, great, I love that. But when she came into the hair and makeup room, she wanted Velcro rollers, and this and that, and, and shadow and contour, and <laughs> nothing that was raw. Right. And and so I we, I tried to work with her, but I didn't want to put in the rollers and whatever. And, then, and, and Richard Avedon was outside the hair and makeup room hearing the whole thing. And at one point, he just stormed in and lost it. No. Yes, and told her to leave. And she left. And that was about noon. And then we were called back at about 5 p.m. that Richard and um, that Dick and, and, and Sharon had patched things up. And she was coming back to the studio to be photographed and to come back. <laughs> and we did. Oh, my God. <laughs> and did you think he was justified in, in saying, like, that's not okay and leave? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, his his reaction was over the top. Uh huh. So, but she I, was I being a he was justified as well. there. I don't think he was justified there. But, um, but no, he was justified uh, for what he was fighting for. And did did had you ever worked with her after that again? Mm, I, I've done. I did her hair once quickly at a Michael Kors show backstage. Uh, when she came to the show, she came backstage and I, you know, fluffed her hair up, whatever, before she went out to sit in the front row. And we talked and we didn't have a problem. Um, it's just that it's, she went somewhere where Richard was not comfortable and, um, and he let her have it. <laughs> right. And was that, was he kind of like, would he do that from time to time? I had never seen him do that in any of the times I worked with him, but I had heard about it. <laughs> um, that's a great story. Would, and if you worked with somebody like that, because I'm sure you've had other people who you're just like, I just want to get through this and go home and like open yeah. up a bottle of vodka. Um, yeah. do you just not work with them again? Or are they on a, your Vogue do not work list, your own personal one? I mean, honestly, I can't say that I have a do not work list. Cause I try to pick people that I think I'm going to like to begin with. Yeah, I don't have a do not work with, but I have I have worked with people that I've wanted to get through the day. 
Um, and then I worked with them again and they were lovely. You know, they were having a bad day. So that's happened to me. Yeah. Where I worked with somebody and didn't have a great first opinion and then went for it and worked with them a second time because of the photographer or somebody. And then they were lovely and changed my opinion of them. So it, it takes two people to create a situation. And if somebody is, is provoking me, I, I'm, I'm strong. I know how to handle myself and I know how to let not somebody, somebody not take me there. And then once I get out of the situation, I don't repeat it. <laughs> but oh. um, there's no reason not to be nice. I want to be able to lay my pillow on my, you know, my head on my pillow at night and think about the good things I, you know, the way I was that day and that I'm happy with the way I was and, and what happened that day. I don't know. I don't want, yeah. when you're nasty to somebody, it doesn't feel good inside. It just doesn't. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> I want well, I want to be treated nicely, so I have to treat people nicely. Well, I think that you I don't want to say you're an exception because there are a lot of really great people, but also yeah. there are the others and um you know, it deserves to be called out that I you have a a good reputation in the industry like people, you know, who have worked for you or assisted you, it's pretty unanimous that people say that you're a nice guy. Um, and now you can put your head on your pillow tonight, say because Quinn Mur Murphy told you that. You know? <laughs> um, I have a technical question. How do mm -hmm. you do conceptual hair? Because you're known for your range of hair, that you can do something pretty and natural, and you can also do something that's yeah. very graphic and geometrical. Yeah. How do you do that type of hair and also make it chic? And not looking like it's at, from a regional hair show, if you know what I mean. Like, it's a fine line. It's a really yes, fine line. And walking that yes, line is I actually do. kind of fun, right? It's restraint, I think. You know, people want to always maybe add more and, 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 and say more. And I don't know. I love, I love fashion. And I, that's what inspires me to do hairdos. And so I never want to overpower the clothes. I want to be that perfect topping on a, on a, on an outfit. You know, I don't know. And yeah, so, but you don't play it safe. It, you're not afraid. I don't to, play it safe right. at all. Because I, because I'm a creative person, and I just have I just have to. I, I don't know where my ideas come from. Honestly, it's just it's hard to say. Um, do you remember the last thing you hair did? Hair in shapes and in ways that most people don't. So I don't know. And then I try to think of of how do, how do I get there? How do I get to this end result that I want? And I figure it out. And that's how I taught myself. Do you remember the last hair you did that you didn't like? Hmm. That's hard because if I don't like something, I, I'm, I'm going to, then I change it. Or I'm going to keep working. I'll ask somebody else on the shoot. What do you think? You like it? I'm not sure. I've I've done that. that is, I've gone up and you know, where they say, "Okay, great, the hair looks great." I'm like, "Are you sure? I don't like it." And they're like, "No, no, no." It's, and 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 you know, sometimes I change it, and sometimes people convince me that no, it's good, and then I work on it, and I see that it is. But I I'm I'm the first one to. I, I have no problem thinking that I did something bad, but I'm not just going to then leave it that way. <laughs> right. I guess you work in so in like high fashion, but if you do a celebrity for a red carpet and sometimes it's just the elements happen and you just, you're like, Oh, it didn't really land the way I wanted it to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't say that's happened to me too much. Thank you. Oh yeah. Me neither. Um, me neither actually. And Dumb I, question. And I, and, and I, um, 
And I don't work with a lot of red carpet celebrities anymore. I think the last time I did a red carpet was um, Natalie Portman for the Golden Globes when she won for Black Swan. Wow. That was a while ago. You know, the rates were just be- became so low. <laughs> yeah. And, and they don't want to pay airfare and they don't want to pay hotel. And um, it's just not worth it. And, 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 you know, some of these celebrities are getting huge um, checks for wearing dresses, you know. And, Me- um, meaning they should they should like help cover um, that stuff. Sometimes the rates are pretty low, and you know you're making fifty, a hundred thousand dollars because you wore that dress, or two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand. You know you could pay a top rate. You don't have to right. offer a low rate or, or a discounted rate. You could say what's your rate, and you pay your top rate. You know that's it's it sort of seems to have disappeared from our business where people ask your rate. No, they just tell you what they have and they expect you to just lower it to, to, to their budget. And, but you're um, willing to work less. I mean, I lower my rate too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to play the game, right? Um, and like I said before, you know, there's still good rates. Um, it's just, it's just not, for, n- not, not those celebrity rates. They aren't good rates. I must say. Right. You know, well, you know that. Netflix you know those rates and, and mess it up. Oh, <laughs> and yes, then I and then do. the do and then the glam squad app started and all these. You know, you can get your hair and makeup done for a hundred dollars and this. And that, you know, it's at home. So they they didn't want to pay a good price for us. So so I I thought yeah I'm done with this red carpet thing unless it's a local thing in New York and it's somebody I like and actually no I did Blake Lively for a red carpet event. Uh, it was Ryan the Pokemon film that Ryan did. Oh, wow. And I did her for that red carpet. And then I did Camilla. Oh, God. I, I, it's just that they weren't um, themselves. It wasn't their project. That's why I maybe didn't think of it. But Camilla McConaughey for a Matthew McConaughey film as well. Okay. Um, two Januarys ago. So I do do red carpet. But if it's in New York, it, it, you know, because otherwise they don't want to pay airfare. You're not going to sit in the middle seat in the last row of, of economy. <laughs> To make yourself Listen, a local in it, Las Vegas. I did it many times and I had no problem doing it. But um, yeah, but then you work yourself through that. <laughs> so Orlando, I wanted to ask you, I heard that you're starting a YouTube channel. How did that come about? Well, dur- during COVID, I started talking to a friend and we started playing with hair and makeup. And, um, and I started thinking about all the wonderful hairdos that I've gotten to do and all the great people I've worked with that have inspired me to do really extreme hairstyles. And I get a lot of DMs asking me, you know, how do you do this? You should show one day how you do this and so on and so forth. So I thought I'd um, go back and revisit some of the hairstyles that I love that I've done and and show exactly how I did them. Wow. Um, because, because I'm self-taught. I have a kind of unique way of getting to the end result. I've always had maybe a vision of an end result, but not knowing how to get there. So, so what is um, that going to be like? Are you going to allow yourself to kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, like uh, fumble your way to the end result? Yes, exactly. I mean, if I'm having a hard time, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show it because some of my hairdos are very difficult to do. So it'll take me one or two tries before I get it. Right. Plus I haven't done these hairstyles in a while, so I'm not going to practice beforehand either. So, it, is it something that you remember in your mind's eye, like how you did it? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. And um, and I've had assistants throughout the ages that have um, taken notes um, that I can always go back to. But 
I, I remember how I did things. Um, and, and then I want to end them with um, makeup of today on models of today and, and with styling and photography of today to show how these kind of extreme couture, high fashion hairstyles can be, can live in today's world too. Wow. I love that concept actually, because it's one thing to see it on a runway. It's another thing that women exactly. can apply it to their like everyday lives. Well, I don't know about women applying it to their everyday lives. It, it's people that like extreme looks. Oh, I see. Well, to start with, do you think I, I there know. is a way that someone can take an extreme look and take something from it and apply absolutely. it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I talk about it. When is it coming out? Maybe just doing, um, I launched April 12th. Okay. I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for that. That sounds so exciting. One last question, actually, I wanted to ask you was, um, are you ever going to have a book? Oh God. Um, I don't know. I've never really wanted to do a book because I, the people that I know that have done books have struggled so much to get releases from photographers and photographers don't want to be in a book if this photographer's in it and how many pictures does that photographer have as opposed to me and it's just a oh, whole wow. thing and i've worked with very top diva photographers <laughs> so and i've seen what my friends have gone through and i just feel like ugh. is it not important for you to see your work kind of it's not because it, in that somehow it, it feels like it, it closes a chapter i don't know right so maybe when you're and ready to... And I like, have no intention of that. <laughs> when you're ready to like, you know, put your blow dryer away, then maybe revisit it. Yeah, or, or maybe I can have a book that has more of a theme, like maybe my my my, my fashion show Rejects or something like that. That would be something cool. That's never, that it's never been seen before, you know? That would be really cool. But otherwise, I don't know. I don't know that I want to just go back and read. I'm not a nostalgic person. I don't live in the past. And you so. don't want to sit on a coffee table. So there you go. <laughs> no, I've never had that dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, and here's the a question that I ask everyone who is on the podcast is, if you were able to go back in time and meet yourself somewhere, where would it be and what would you say? Um, hmm. I mean, it would probably be sometime in high school and I would tell myself that it's okay that you don't connect with so many, with too many people and that you have to keep believing in yourself because as you will see later on, you will be the only one believing in yourself, but that will be the strongest belief you need and just keep, keep on it because that was the one thing I didn't have support throughout, um, my career i did from my, from from my brothers but um even even my best friend said to me one day oh if you, you think you're gonna do the Yves Saint Laurent show one day if you do the Yves Saint Laurent show i'll fly myself and sit first row <laughs> on the <laughs> runway and good luck getting a seat being, he ended up being my assistant backstage on on my first Yves Saint Laurent show so he even had a better oh seat. my god <laughs> But, you know, I said to him, you know what? Yeah, I do think I'm going to do it one day. And, you know, maybe you don't, but I do. So I got to believe in that. And that was always my answer, you know. It's, it's, and I did. I believed in myself. So just I would tell myself that, you know, you're on the right path, even though it doesn't feel like it most of the time. <laughs> um, do you have time to play a quick, uh, a quick game? I'm going to ask you 
a series of questions and just tell me the first thing that comes to mind or a couple things that come to mind. I know that you're super into fragrance. And so I wanted to know what is your favorite scent? My favorite scent is called Georges or Madame Georges. It's from the 1800s. You get it from this little store in Paris. And it has a picture of a man like that looks like a woman on it. It's, it's beautiful. What does it smell like? Oh, it's just so many different flowers and it's strong and just how fragrances were back then. You know, people didn't bathe all the time. so Right. It had to cover up the funk. Yes. What is your least favorite scent? Oh, my God. I, I hate really commercial scents. You know, I don't know. I, I can't say that I remember the scents that I don't like. I think I used to wear something in in um, junior high, like Dakar Dakar Noir or something. Uh huh. Oh, I, I would hate that. it now. Um, really? That's funny. And then I wore. <laughs> I almost and- bought it the other day. I saw it and I thought, should I buy that again? Well, you know, everything. Um, comes maybe back. I should smell it, and I would feel the same way as you. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite candle? This is a really um, edgy question here. I mean, I do like the Frederick Mal candles. Okay. I'm so bad with names. I think there's a tobacco one that I like. Okay. That's good. I don't know. When uh, I go to the store your... and I see the name, I remember. <laughs> what is your favorite restaurant to go to for a special occasion? Well, I haven't been to a restaurant for a special occasion in a long time. But um, when I did go, I, I used to love Mr. Chow's mm. or Nobu. What is your no occasion restaurant just that you love? Um, butcher's daughter. Mm. Favorite place to unwind. I sometimes like to eat vegan. So I guess I go back and forth. Okay. Favorite place to unwind. Um, in the country, in, in, in water somewhere in a river or yeah, I'm, I'm allergic to salt water. So I have to do rivers, lakes and pools. Oh, wow. What is your favorite thing to hear from your agent? Oh, you're confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> what is your least favorite thing to hear from your agent? They released. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you had to choose from a bad hotel to use the shampoo they give you or the conditioner, which one? Um, the conditioner. Yeah. Uh, bad haircut or bad hair color? Ooh, bad haircut. Water too hot or water too cold? Well, I do a cold rinse every day um, until it feels comfortable for the last four years. Um, so uh, too cold is better than too hot. <laughs> Speaking of cold, <laughs> what is best cure for a common cold? I don't know. What do I do when I have a cold? I don't even know what I do. I, I don't do anything. I just let it go away. I, I, I hardly, I so rarely get colds. Um, NyQuil? Maybe that's what I do. NyQuil. <laughs> What's your favorite Instagram account? I don't have one. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a good answer. Um, who has the best head of hair in the business? Oh, um, Wow. I mean, Giselle is known for that gorgeous mane of hair. Oh, okay. But, but she's maybe an old timer. No, I thought you were going to say Amal Clooney, but even though I don't know what her hair is like, I just she well, looks like she has Amal Clooney hair. does have gorgeous hair. 
um, and I've worked with her quite a bit. Um, I'm lucky to. Um, but I don't know. Giselle's hair is naturally gorgeous. You have to work on Amal's hair. Uh-huh. You know, Giselle wakes up and it's like wavy and messy and gorgeous. And the color kind of bleaches on try. its own. <laughs> um, who's the one person who can always make you laugh? Um, oh, my God. Blake Lively. She's got um, such a great personality. Good to know. Um, Orlando, Florida or Orlando Bloom? <laughs> Orlando Bloom. Yeah, agree. And who's your favorite makeup artist? Oh, my God. You're going to do that to me? I know. Tough question, <laughs> huh? My favorite makeup artist? I'm not going to answer that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there are too many that I love for different reasons, but um, yeah, no, I can't name anybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, Orlando, thank you so much for doing this. I um, I look at this as a great opportunity to get to meet you, and uh, I just really appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you. Thank you for um, having me. It was a pleasure to do this. I hope to talk to you again soon. Yes, me too. Okay. Bye. Bye.